The scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew 16, verse 13 through 19. Hear the word of our Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall, be bound, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, why don't we start this morning by prayer. So would you pray with me? Father, you are always aware of our needs. You are always aware of how far we come short of your glory. Lord, you are always aware of the state of our souls, where our minds are at the moment, and whether or not we have divided hearts as we gather here to worship you. Lord, I confess my, my heart is divided. I would rather depart and be with you. Enjoy your glory in the way that Jeff, our dear brother, is enjoying your glory at the moment. Father, please help us uh, move forward with the tasks at hand. We're knowing that you who are faithful and sovereign over our lives, you will accomplish what concerns each one of us. You will fulfill your purposes for us, Lord, and we will receive the inheritance among the saints, those who are sanctified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we worship you here and now, I pray that you would allow us by faith to bridge the gap between heaven and earth or to understand that what is happening here in this place is not disconnected from what is happening in the glory of your presence right now. That you are not absent from us, Lord. You are very much present and among us and it is only our dimness of spiritual sight that keeps us from seeing the fullness and glory of that reality. How can we be bored with the worship of the eternal God? The only way I can sense that that's possible, Lord, is that we are not in this moment as aware of our eternal God as we ought to be. 
And so I pray you would forgive us. Lord, please don't let us walk in pride. Lord, we need you and we need your nearness. And so I pray that you would be pleased to come be among us this morning and awaken our spiritual eyes and lighten our hearts to see and to understand that you are among us. Father, be glorified in this time. Let the name of Christ be lifted high and may our hearts be encouraged with the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray for those who are not among us, who are not able to be among us today for various reasons. Lord, we ask that you administer to their hearts and their souls where they are right now, that your truth would inform their minds and impact their hearts and drive their wills to offer themselves up to you as a living and holy sacrifices. God, please, I pray that the, uh, though they are not among us and enjoying the benefit and the blessing of being gathered physically, corporately with your people, I pray that you would encourage them nonetheless, Lord, and that you would draw their hearts sweetly and tenderly after you, Lord, apply your word to their lives exactly where they need it applied. And Lord, we look to that day when we will all be restored to the one gathering together as your people. Father, pray for us who are here. Would you please bend to our weakness and minister to us, Lord, for the sake of Christ and for the glory of his gospel. God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing in our, uh, I guess we're continuing to come to a close in our study of growing in grace. Uh, You guys know nothing is short with me and it seems like things are never simple in my mind. I'm going to try to be as uh, simple and straightforward today as I possibly can be for your sake. But we are coming to an end of our series of Growing in Grace, and we are looking at the last means of growing in grace that the Lord has appointed for us to enjoy this side of eternity, and that is the fellowship of the church. That the church body is a means of grace that God has appointed for our good. And requires of us, not only that we not neglect our involvement in the church as a means of grace to us, but also that we um, fully engage in the life of the church, that we might grow in grace and help one another grow in grace. The church is not an entity that's made up of something other than Christ people. And so the church is not something that can grow us apart from Christ people and the involvement of Christ people. And we're going to look at that more uh, in a couple weeks and the week after at least. Um, what does it mean to be involved and engaged in the life of the church? And what we're doing today is we're pretty much hunkering down in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. And we're looking at what this verse has to say about the nature of the church. Specifically, what does it have to say about the authority of the church? Authority is not something that we like to talk about. It's definitely not something that we in our day like to submit to. 
But the reality is that Christ has given authority to the local church as a local expression of his body. And part of our relationship with Christ and our submission to his authority involves submitting to the authority he has entrusted to the church. And so we're looking at that in Matthew 16, 19. This is the last aspect of the nature of the church that we're going to be considering together. And uh, just in summary, what we're driving at today is we're seeking to understand that Christ, as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has given his church the power and authority she needs to do the work he has entrusted to her. So that is what we're looking at today and what we will build on in the weeks ahead. So this morning, um, there are seven things that we want to consider from uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Seven observations relating to the authority of the church. And as I said, we'll be very straightforward on this. I'm going to try and rein myself in and not get trapped in rabbit trails. But uh, it'll be difficult. Let's see if we can work through this. So seven things that we want to notice from Matthew 16, verse 19, as it relates to our understanding of the authority Christ has entrusted to his church. Number one. Jesus describes the church's authority using the picture of keys. Keys. Keys, in this verse, represents the authority that Christ gives to the church. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, built into the idea of keys is obviously the concept of authority. What does a key do? A key is used either to open something or a key is used to close something. Yeah, to to either unlock something or to lock something. That's what a key does. And the one who has the ability and the authority to lock and close or unlock and open is the one who holds the key. So a key opens or closes something, but the one who has the authority to do that, the one who has the authority to open, the one who has the authority to close, is the one who holds the key. Like I have the ability to enter into my house and invite other people in because I own the key to my house, right? I have an ability to open the church doors and invite people in because the church body has entrusted to me a key that enables me to do that. Well, even so, these keys that Jesus is speaking of here in verse 19 represent authority that belongs to the church to open or to close something. So that's number one. The authority is represented with the picture of keys. Number two, the question, to whom is this authority given? Or who are these keys handed off to? In verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys. Who is the you there? Well, in Greek, you here is singular. It's one thing I don't like about modern English is that we don't maintain the distinction between the singular and the plural you. So it makes interpreting passages like this more difficult. 
this you here, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That is a singular you. It's talking to one person. And in context, we know who that is. It's talking to Peter. But Jesus is saying to Peter, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in light of that, some people say that these keys then were only given to the Apostle Peter. As Roman Catholics believe, uh, the Catholic Catechism, paragraph 553, it says, Jesus entrusted this authority to the church through the ministry of the apostles, and in particular, through the ministry of Peter, the only one to whom he specifically entrusted the keys of the kingdom. So you guys know those representations of heaven that have Peter sitting at the gates, right? Deciding who will and who will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's the idea represented here. That Peter is the one who has those keys. And he alone is the one who has the authority to open or close the gates of the kingdom of heaven. And you know where that authority has now been vested. According to the Roman Catholic Church, it is now belonging to those who sit in Peter's chair or his seat supposedly in Rome, uh, the Pope, in other words. Well, everyone agrees <clears throat> that Matthew 16, 19, that in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus is speaking directly to Peter. There's no argument there. Where we would disagree is with the idea that Jesus only intends for Peter to have those keys. So just because Jesus is speaking directly to Peter does not mean that Jesus only intends Peter to have the keys, right? Now we get that from the fact that the rest of Scripture makes clear that the authority represented by those keys is an authority that not only Peter exercised, nor even the other apostles exercised, but rather is an authority that the entire church exercises, so, for example, just two chapters later in Matthew 18, verse 18, we find that what Jesus says here to Peter is broadened and applied to the church as a whole. So we'll get into this more in a minute, but you see that the purpose of these keys in Matthew 16, 19 is to bind and to loose. We are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and what that enables the church to do is to bind and to loose. That same language is used only in one other place in the entire New Testament, and that is Matthew 18, 18, where Jesus, speaking of the entire corporate body of his people, says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, the parallel language there tells us that what Jesus is saying to Peter in Matthew 16, 19 is applicable to the entire body of the church in Matthew 18, 18. Okay? So the authority that is invested in those keys that Jesus is saying, I'm going to give to Peter, is an authority that he is actually also going to give to the entire body of the church. Right? Do you follow that argument there? Okay. If you don't, shake your head so I can see. All right, you're all with me. And if you want to add to that argument, throughout the rest of the New Testament, in the book of Acts, for example, and in the rest of the epistles, we find that the authority represented by these keys in Matthew 16, 19 is actively being worked out in the life of individual local congregations where Peter is not present. 
So what gives them the authority to act with that power that Jesus entrusts to Peter if he also did not entrust that power to them? That's the argument there. You see this worked out throughout the rest of the New Testament. So what we see is that though Jesus is speaking individually to Peter in this passage, the authority that he is speaking about is not given exclusively to Peter. Okay? Now, I don't have time to go into why that's really, 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 really important. I'm sure you already understand why that's important, right? And it doesn't just have to do with the debates with Rome. I don't have time to dig into this, but this is very important for our understanding of our relationship to the local church. The power of these keys is not vested in one man in a church. Okay? It's not one guy at the top ruling over everybody else. No matter what people want to say about the, the title and the position of lead pastor, I am not the one who holds all the authority in this church body. Nor is all of that authority vested in a group of men within the congregation. The elders do not hold all the authority of the keys. It's really important for you to understand that. We are elder-led church. We are not an elder-rule church. The elders do not make all the decisions for the congregation. The congregation is a company of believers who belong to a priesthood. And as priest unto God, you as individuals have authority to exercise in the presence of the Lord. You have responsibilities that you are responsible to fulfill here in the life of this church. It is the ministry of the saints that upbuilds the body of Christ. And so, again, I, I could go on and on on that. But I just want to point out that the authority, this is really important for understanding that the authority is not something that is, that is residing in one man or one group of men within the local church or within the universal church. But rather, it is an authority that belongs to every single believer who belongs to the church. Okay? So that's number two. Number three. Who is the one who gives these keys to the church? Verse 19 says, I, Jesus speaking, I will give you the keys. Now, clearly, Christ then is the one who gives these keys to his church. Now, that means a number of really important things. And I want you to follow me through on this. I'm going to have three specific things I'm going to mention. But one thing that that sure, surely means is that these keys do not belong to the church. They belong to Christ. And because they belong to Christ, therefore the church does not own those keys. The church is entrusted with those keys. Okay? So... Three things that we learn from that. So sub-point, you can put A, B, C, so you don't mix it up with one, two, three, if that's how you're numbering these seven points. But point A, one of the serious and practical implications that this has for how we understand the nature of the church's authority, point A, we have to recognize, first of all, that the church has been given real authority. In the eyes of the world, the church may seem to be nothing more than an impotent, 
powerless or even irrelevant expression of organized religion. But she does not appear that way in the eyes of Christ. Christ is the one who has empowered her. Christ's word is the one that ratifies her authority. And Christ expects not only that the church would use that authority, but also that all of his people would live in mutual submission to that authority. Now, I know, like I said earlier, that we live in a society that balks at the idea of submitting to authority. And let's be honest, there are good reasons for that. Okay? Authority in this world has very rarely ever gone unabused. Is that the right way to say that? I'm sure someone would correct my grammar there. It's unfortunate that those who are entrusted with the most power in this world are those that corrupt that, that entrustment most clearly. We see examples of that all around us. Right? Australia. Who knew? Right? Who'd have thunk it, as they'd say down south? Who'd have, who'd have thunk that? Well, it's here, too. The sad reality is that, apart from what happens in the world, there are countless times that we could point to countless examples throughout church history where we can say that the church, or people within the church, have also abused the power that has been entrusted to them. In fact, many of you have experienced that kind of abuse yourselves. You've experienced the heavy hand of an overbearing leader, right? How it it just zaps the life of a church. When there's a control nut at the helm and is over every single little thing that everyone does in the church and nothing can happen apart from him giving his say-so, that saps the life out of a church body. You understand that? And it takes years, it takes lots of time to recover from abuse like that. I understand that many of you sitting in this room have experienced that kind of abuse at the hands of spiritual leaders. But in light of what Jesus says here in Matthew 16, 19, we have to be careful to make sure that we don't overreact to that reality. We need to be careful to make sure that we do not reject the idea of the church's authority altogether just because we have had bad experiences. Okay? If we call upon Christ as our Savior... He expects us to submit to him as our Lord, right? You cannot cannot claim that Christ is your Savior if you are not submitting to his Lordship, okay? It's a package deal. They're not separable. Well, one area where our submission to the Lordship of Christ will be most evidently manifest is in our submission to his authority in the church. That's actually part of what it means to be an official member of a local church. It means that you have openly declared that you are submitting to the authority of Christ by submitting to the local expression of his body. So one sub point to point number three, okay? 
The church has real authority that has been given to her by Christ, and we must recognize that authority and submit to it. Point number, no, point letter B. There we are, B. Okay, so point three A was recognition of authority. Point three B, is this still clear? Okay. I'm just joking. I know you guys are smarter than that. Number, letter, number B. Letter B. Here we go. Who's not smart? <clears throat> so we need to recognize that the church has authority, but the fact that Christ gave this authority to his church tells us something about the nature of that authority. It tells us that it is delegated authority. Now that means, as I pointed out earlier, that the church's authority does not come from itself. It is, in fact, an authority that comes from Christ. But that also means, now listen to this. This may be a complicated sentence, but please hear what I'm saying. The fact that this authority does not come from the church, but comes from Christ, means that because the church's authority is actually Christ's authority bestowed upon her. Submitting to the church's authority is equal to submitting to Christ's authority. And rebelling against the church's authority is equal to rebelling against Christ's authority. Now, it may not be as controversial as you hear that, Put like that maybe, but this is what most people in our country would not agree with who call themselves Christians. I can be out in the woods with my Bible all alone and I can have as thriving of a relationship with Jesus Christ as I could ever have had gathered with that church over there. Right? I mean, countless numbers of books. If we still had bookstores around, go in and look at the books Go online and shop the books that are dealing with relationships with the local church and you will find that it's on the decline in importance in people's minds. Right? Who needs the church? I've got Christ. Well, guess what? If you don't feel your need for the church, then you don't have Christ. Period. We'll let that sit. To submit to Christ's authority is equal to, or excuse me, to submit to the church's authority is equal to submitting to Christ's authority. Rebelling against the church's authority is equal to rebelling against Christ's authority. Now there's a really important point C that needs to be added to that. Because this is Christ's authority that is being delegated to the church, the church has the responsibility to make sure that she uses that authority according to the desire and the intention of the one who gave it to her. The church does not have the freedom to use its authority to abuse people. Ever. As soon as the church steps outside of the proper boundaries that Christ has set for the use of the authority he's given her, then their expression or their attempt to use that authority is no longer valid. 
She's renounced her authority at that point. Just as a pastor or an elder who breaches the covenant of ministry that is made between him and the Lord, as soon as he steps outside of that covenant, he is no longer counted as a minister. An elder's authority is limited to that elder's ability to rightly interpret the Scriptures and apply the Scriptures, and it never goes outside of that. It's the same way with the church. The church's authority is limited to the sphere of Christ's will as it is revealed in His Word. The church never has the authority to mandate anything that is not contained explicitly or by clear implication in the words of Christ in the Scriptures. So let me give a practical example of of where that authority is limited. That's why we cannot mandate masks in order to come into the corporate assembly of Christ's people. It's not an authority Christ has given us. You cannot lay a requirement upon someone to gather with the people of Christ that the word of God does not lay upon that person. Vaccine mandates, never in this place, no authority to do that. No one has the authority to mandate that in this place either. Be he governor, president, city council member, police officer, no one can come in here and tell us to do something that is not explicitly or by clear implication contained in the word of God. And as soon as the church does something like that, she has abdicated her authority, right? Christ gave the church... His keys. And he has expectations for how his church uses those keys. So I've already kind of said this, bear with me. In other words, the church's authority only exists and is operative so long as it is used within the boundaries of loyalty to Christ. A loyalty that is defined by the scriptures. No decision made by any local church stands if that decision does not accurately measure up to and reflect the character and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are difficult, there are difficult matters that the elders have had to work through over the last couple of years regarding what appear to us to be improper excommunications by other local churches. How do you handle something like that when another church has said, you are no longer able to fellowship with us and that person comes here? How do the elders work through something like that? Well, what we have to do is we have to gather information about that situation and find out, okay, what were the circumstances as best as we can tell? Do they measure up to the word of God? What does does God's word mandate in regard to this situation? And did the church act appropriately? And if we have to say no then we have a, not only the right, but we have the responsibility before Christ to ignore an unjust mandate laid down by another local church and uphold God's word against it. So that's just a practical illustration of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the church can never exceed the boundaries of her authority and still be legitimate in operating according to that authority. You guys remember what Jesus said in Revelation 2 to 3, right? Those churches that would not repent and order their steps according to the will of Christ, what did he threaten to do to them? 
So I'm going to remove your, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You will cease to be a church in my presence, and I will write Ichabod on your building. Well, if Jesus says that to those who refuse to repent and order their steps according to his gospel, remedy their ways according to his will, then how much more so will he come and strip the keys away from a church if they're abusing their authority? And we see that happening all around us. So those are three really important things that we need to keep in mind, three important implications that those first three points set before us. Now, if you're, if you're a counting man, you know that means we have four more points to go. You guys up for it for a little bit? <clears throat> I will take that as a yes. All right, so point number four. Not point number four, not sub-point, but main point, number four. What do these keys enable the church to open or close? We've seen the the fact that her authority is represented by these keys. We've seen that Christ has given those keys to the entire church body. But what do these keys open? What do they go to? What are we unlocking and locking? Well, this is found in how Jesus describes those keys in verse 19 of Matthew 16. He says here, I will give you the... (laughs) Listen this. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church given the keys of what? The kingdom of heaven. This phrase in this verse made the uh, Scottish Presbyterian James uh, Bannerman. I believe that's his first name. Bannerman. It made him say, um, yeah, it made him say that this is a strange and startling authority that Christ has given to his church. This is a strange and startling authority that Christ has given to his church. Not because we don't know what Jesus is saying right here, but because it's very clear and we do know what he's saying. He says to the church, I'm going to give you keys that belong to the kingdom of heaven. And it is going to be in your power and in your authority to open the gates of heaven and let people in. Am I reading that wrong? I don't think I am. The keys that Christ entrusts to the church are designed, in other words, they are designed to unlock the kingdom of heaven. Just to be clear, that means that what Christ has entrusted to the church implies that it is within the church's authority to unlock the gates of heaven and grant access to the kingdom. Now, among many things that this can mean, it most definitely does mean that there is an inescapable connection between the church on earth and the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at this probably more in a minute, if not in a week that's coming ahead. But to state it very plainly, 
This means that your or a person's relationship to the kingdom of heaven is unavoidably connected to that person's relationship to the church. That's pretty significant. To genuinely be in fellowship with one means that you are genuinely in fellowship with the other. Now, there can be people in a church who don't belong to the kingdom of heaven. There can be those who even belong to the membership of a local church who are not yet in fellowship with Christ. I understand that reality. But if you are someone who is genuinely brought into fellowship with Christ, then you will be in genuine fellowship with his people. And if you are in genuine fellowship with his people, you are in genuine fellowship with the kingdom of heaven. This is, uh, we're, I'm not going to go into this anymore, but I just want to say this is what Cyprian meant in the mid-200s, mid to late 200s, when he said, outside the church there is no salvation. He did not mean by that how Roman Catholics interpret it, that the church is a repository of grace and it is at the church's will to dispense that grace according as she sees fit. That is not what Cyprian meant when he said, outside the church there is no salvation. What he meant was, if you are not united to the people of Christ, then you have no salvation. If you are seeking fellowship with God outside of the people of God, you will not be accepted in his presence. You have none. No salvation. That's the, I mean, that is one of the main messages of the book of 1 John, right? How can we say we love God when we don't love God's people? So if the church, if the church has been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom of heaven, then any favorable relationship with the king of heaven cannot be genuine apart from fellowship with his people, fellowship with his church, the one whom he has entrusted with the keys of the kingdom. Now that leads immediately to our fifth observation. What in the world are those keys? If the church has been entrusted with keys that open up the kingdom of heaven, what are the keys? Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. I see Grant smiling. Grant's like, man, get me in the pulpit. I can tell you what those keys are. Grant, Grant is, Pastor Grant is a brother full of these keys. He is always talking with the authority of these keys. The only instrument that we possess as a church that can open the gates of glory and let a sinner come in is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the context, in fact, Matthew, in context of Matthew 16, the keys are obviously connected to the truths that Peter is confessing about Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Those truths are connected to the reality of the keys Jesus is entrusting to his people. It's the gospel that enables the church to open up the gates of heaven to sinners and to call sinners to come in. Come in. 
You know, it's like what the Lord said to Paul in Acts 26:18. You got to keep in mind the scene. Paul's describing his conversion, how Christ brought him to faith. And it's after Jesus brought Paul to see the truth about God, right? That he calls him to take the message that he has now understood to be true and go spread it around to others, right? It's as if Jesus says, now you have seen me, Paul. Now you know who Yahweh is, right? Remember remember, uh, Paul's question, Saul's question back to the Lord. Who are you, Lord, when the Lord appeared to him? Well, here Jesus is saying, now you know who Yahweh is. Now you know who the Lord is. It's me, the one whom you were persecuting. And now that you know the truth about me, go and declare it to others. Go, Paul. I'm sending you to open their eyes. That's what keys do, right? They open things. Here Jesus is telling Paul, now you know the truth about who I am. Now go open the eyes of those who are blind. Help them see the truth. Give them the power and the authority through the truth of me, of who I am, to turn away from the domain of Satan and darkness and to turn to the kingdom of God. Teach them how to receive forgiveness in my name and how to receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, go take this key and go unlock the kingdom among the Gentiles. And what did Paul do? He went. And he started using that key. Right? And I'm thankful for that. Because apart from those, the church taking those keys and going and unlocking the gates of heaven for my people, then I'd still be out worshiping Thor or something and kill it. we'd be killing each other. Right. No, the only way for sinners to be delivered out of the domain and the authority of Satan and into the kingdom of God is for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth. It is the gospel that opens the gates of heaven to sinners because it is the gospel that opens the eyes of sinners to see the truth. And as those, this local church body, we are even those who have been entrusted with that precious key. And it's our responsibility to use the authority that that key represents to go out into all the world and open up the kingdom of God for all the nations. Matthew 24, 14, I love what Jesus says here. He says, this gospel of the kingdom, replace gospel there with keys or key. This key of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now that implies it's the responsibility of the church to carry that key forth into all the nations. If that's Christ's will for his gospel of the kingdom to go forth, be proclaimed in all the nations as a testimony to them, then it is our responsibility to take up that authority and start using it. Now, this can get really theoretical here. This can feel very unpractical, right? Or it can feel disconnected, 
Well, wait, Pastor Seth, don't we, don't we do that through the missions committee? Don't the missions, I mean, aren't they responsible for making sure that we as Oak Ridge Community Church are doing our part to get those keys out among the nations so that we can unlock that kingdom of heaven for sinners? It's like, well, that's very much a part of it. And if you actually believed that that's what the missions committee was doing, then I would expect to see more of you there at our meetings. Right? I think there were, yes, take that rebuke. I love you. I love you. I do. I love you. But we assume so much in the church. Yes, we do that as a missions committee. And those who, are, who, who really feel burdened to make sure that we're doing that great work, they, they show up, they're faithful. And we try our best to discern the best way to move forward with the keys, the authority of the kingdom of heaven, and go unlock it for the nations. However, that is not the only application or the only situation or circumstance in which the people of the church are charged to use the keys. Where else ought you to be using, ought we to be using the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Who said it? Every, every day? Is that what you said? That's right. Everyone, everywhere, every day. All right? Yes, your coworkers. There are lost coworkers that each one of you interact with. How are you stewarding, as a member of Christ's church, how are you stewarding the responsibility to take the keys of the kingdom of heaven and unlock the gates of heaven for them? It doesn't mean being rude or brash. It doesn't mean being insensitive. But it does mean that that is your aim. That is your ambition for your coworker. That's your ambition for your neighbor. You are wanting to unlock the mystery of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of glory for them. You're wanting to use the gospel to open their eyes and let them see what you've come to see, right? Paul said it's because we know the fear of the Lord that we go forth and seek to persuade others. He said we know the love of Christ and it's the love of Christ that constrains us to move forward in the ministry of reconciliation. If you are never seeking to bring the gospel to anyone else, if you are never seeking to unlock the glory and the beauty of Christ our King, then I would question whether or not you've ever seen him. What do you do when you come across something that excites you? You tell other people about it. You watched a great movie. You read a great book. This amazing thing happened. What do you do? In your joy over that thing, whatever it is, you start telling other people about it. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. It just happens. It bubbles over. It comes out. If that never happens with the gospel of Jesus Christ, my friend, you are not spending enough time feeding upon Christ. See, this is the secret behind evangelism. Now I'm on a rabbit trail now. We're going to have to come back to the message next week or whatever. But this is the secret behind evangelism, and this is the secret of living your entire life as a Christian. It's not about having just a bunch of rules and methods that you can check off and follow. It's about being filled with the life of Christ. That's what causes you to be a faithful Christian. The hope of glory is not, oh yeah, I've got my checklist here. I know what to do. The hope of glory is Christ in you. 
If Christ is not coming out of you in relationships with other people, then my friend, you better be asking yourself, is Christ in me? Because if he's not in me, how can he be coming out of me? If he's not out of me, how can he be in me? And there's far more application of these keys, the keys of the kingdom, than just sharing with your lost coworkers and neighbors. What about in your families? Husbands, how well do you steward the keys of the kingdom of heaven in shepherding your wife? Do you wash her in the love of Christ every day? She's having a hard time with the kids. Do you, do you come alongside of her and say, Honey, I know it's hard, but Christ is enough for you. When she's feeling low, when she's downcast and depressed, do you come along and say, Baby, I know Christ knows exactly where you are. Christ, Christ has been here. He knows. He's been tempted and tried in all ways that we are, except he's without sin. He knows how to conquer this. Go to him. Go to him. You know what that kind of relationship would require of you husbands? Of, of us husbands? That would require that we know the Lord more intimately than we do. That we ourselves are walking in the power and the authority of the gospel so that we are ready at a moment's notice. In season, out of season, to preach the truth to our wives. Wives, you have an authority here too to steward those keys in your families? How do you come alongside your husbands and help them shepherd your soul? It's really easy to complain about the inadequacies of your husband. It's far more difficult, and it's actually what Christ calls you to do, to come alongside of your husbands and help them do the will of Christ for you. To come alongside them and say, I know, I know, I know you messed up. I know, husband. I know that you messed up. I know you didn't get it right. I know. But Christ is greater than your failings. Christ is more. He's better than what you have failed to accomplish. Go to him. Get strength. He's sufficient for you. By the power of the gospel and the keys of the gospel, wives, do you submit to the leadership of your husbands? Do you seek to care for them, win them over by your love and your devotion, even sometimes without speaking a word? You know what enables you to do that is having the kingdom of heaven unlocked to you by the gospel of Christ. Singles, you have an authority. You have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and it is your responsibility to bring those keys into your reactions with the church into your reactions with your families, into your reactions with your interactions with your friends. Paul says you're actually far more freed up as a single to do the work of the Lord than those who are married because you can give yourselves to it fully. Are you using the keys of the kingdom of heaven the way God wants you to be using them? Now, the list goes on, right? The point being... Christ has given us an authority, guys. And that authority is wrapped up in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are, are, we, are we familiar enough with the key 
in order to know how to put it in the lock and open the gates. Maybe that's the encouragement. Maybe that's the challenge for today. We'll break here on page four, and we'll come back to page five in a couple weeks and um, finish the rest of these observations from Matthew 16, verse 19. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that <clears throat> your word says wondrous and high and noble things. Not only to us, but Lord, it says high and noble things about us. And um, Father, I pray that you would give us grace by your spirit in Christ to pursue these things in faith. Or to be all that you've called us to be. To take that key that you've entrusted to our church body and to see all the doors in all of our lives opened up, to see every area of our lives exposed to the glory of King Jesus and submitted to him. Father, give us grace as we, even as we sing this closing hymn, give us grace to, to worship you, Lord to take what we've heard from your word and to apply it to our lives, to seek to walk according to the counsel of your will until that day when we join our dear brother, we cross over the Jordan and we enter into your presence. God, would you carry us until that day? We love you. We want to love you more. Please help us do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Benediction comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, starting in verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As our great hope, that's our power, that is the ministry with which we've been entrusted. And may you go and be faithful in that ministry for the glory of Christ, your King. Amen.